The reading this morning is taken from 2 Samuel chapter 13, verses 37 through 39. 2 Samuel 13, 37 through 39. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Good morning, church. Nice to see you today. We're going to be spending our time together right here in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13 through about chapter 18. We'll be reading a few passages together, and we're going to be learning about a pretty unfavorable character in Israelite history, Absalom. Now, if you're here for Bible class this morning, I uh, had to send Jose a few warning texts to stay away from my content as he started teaching about Absalom in his uh, Psalms uh, chapter 3, but he did fine. He uh, taught a really, really nice class, and I appreciate that, and that got us going uh, to learn a little bit more about Absalom. He is well-known in Israelite history because he's the son of David, the great king of Israel, who almost pulled off one of the greatest conspiracies in world history. He almost stole the kingdom from his own father while his father was still alive and actually had his father on the run for his own life. Absalom had the kingdom in his hands and he was ready to take it but he wasn't successful. If you knew David and you know who he was, uh, you can understand why um, that would be an impossible task to take by force and by might the kingdom from his hand. So he wasn't successful. And uh, for the rest of history, he's really not known. Um, he, he's known in a very unfavorable and unpopular way. But for our purposes, we're going to look into Absalom's life because he provides for us great insight into a struggle with sin, into evil that every one of us struggles with, that we're challenged with, that we have to overcome through Christ. And that is the great struggle of self-reliance, self-trust. It was in 1841 when uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote a beautifully crafted short essay entitled Self-Reliance. That's what he called it. He called it Self-Reliance. And it was in this that he was articulating what had already become one of the highest virtues in American culture, and that is radical self-trust. You know, the pull yourself up by your own bootstraps kind of mentality that was already permeating this new world in America that had come. And in 1841, he wrote this essay. And in there, we have a few quotes that have become kind of popular today, um, uh, you know, they've, they've sort of stayed the course of time over the last 170 years or so. One of them is this. He said, to be great is to be misunderstood. What he was meaning was, you know, you have to know who yourself is, who you are, and that's what it means to be great. Another way he said was just, you ought to learn to trust thyself and thyself alone. That's what he said. Um, another place he said, nothing can bring you peace but yourself. Nothing in the world can bring you peace but yourself. That peace comes from you and from you alone. And what this was doing, this sentiment, 
was already a hundred years old. And what it did, it just really cemented um, a culture that reveres self-reliance. That's what we really face in Western American culture, one that reveres self-trust, self-reliance, self-focus. Now, what we're not going to dig into, what I'm not talking about is the Christian ethic of work. That's not what I'm meaning. I'm not talking about uh, that, that a person with his own two hands or her own two hands ought to labor in an honest labor and provide for their family. That's not what I'm talking about when I say self-reliance. So I'm not meaning that you depend upon your own labor to provide for your family. What we're talking about is in the spiritual realm. We're trying to get after that deep reliance that we have on ourselves for matters such as wisdom and guidance, matters on who do I run to when I'm afraid or who do I run to when I need comfort. I trust only myself. What we're really talking about is the functional aspect of everyday salvation. That's really what we're getting after. When you're afraid, when you have anxiety, when you have doubts, when you have concerns, when you need guidance and wisdom, where do you go? Where do you run to? That's the functional idea of how you are saved. And the options are pretty limited, really. You either run to yourself, you trust yourself, or you, as the psalmist said, run to the refuge of the rock who is our God. So this self-reliance is the foundation of every person's departure from God. And where I get this, it comes from Genesis chapter 3. If you go back and you think about that story where Eve and Satan have this interaction, remember that in the garden, Eve didn't just believe what Satan told her. That's not just what she did. Because Satan didn't just come and tell her things, and then she believed it, and then she ate the fruit. That's not what happened. What Eve did, what Eve and Satan had going on there, Satan convinced Eve that she should shift her trust from God to herself. And once Satan convinced Eve that she should doubt God, no longer trust him, she transferred that trust that was once in God to herself, and once the trust was implanted in herself and herself alone, then Eve said to herself, you know what? This fruit is uh, nice to look at. And I bet it'll make me really wise. And I bet it's really, really good for food. And so the content that she was believing was not from Satan, but from herself. You see, the moment we shift trust away from God, that trust energy has to go somewhere. It has to go somewhere. And where it oftentimes goes is right back to ourselves. So this morning, here's what Absalom is going to do for us. His life, his narrative is a really, really powerful kind of outline for us. Absalom in him will see both the display of self-trust, self-reliance, what it looks like to live that way. So we're going to look into his life, see what it looks like to live self-reliant lives. We're going to see the death of self-reliance, how that goes. And ultimately, we'll finish up with how we're delivered from self-reliance. So let's get into self, uh, the display of self-reliance. So... Self-reliance or self-trust is kind of a, a, you know, a one-worded, one-phrase problem that we're talking about, but it has two extreme displays. I want you in your mind to think of this like a spectrum, okay? You know, left to right, kind of extreme ends of a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum, you have a person who is just so fully aware of all the ways that they fail, all the things that they're not good at, all the ways in which they struggle, all of their past mistakes, all of their shame, all of their guilt, all of their fear. And on that end of the extreme, 
you have a person who expresses a hatred towards themselves, a disdain for themselves. That they wake up in the morning and there's fear and anxiety and frustration. They look in the mirror and they don't like what they see. That's one extreme expression of self-trust. We'll get into this in a minute. The other side is someone who is incredibly impressed with their abilities, their gifts, their talents, their skills, what they've accomplished with their own hands and in their life. And what that person lives in is self-love, self-obsession on both sides. So you've got self-hate and you've got self-love. And we're going to see how these work out in the idea of being self-reliant in the flow of everyday life. So Absalom shows both. And his story begins uh, really with his half-brother, Amnon. So Amnon is the oldest son of David. And, you know, David had multiple wives and a lot of children. And Absalom was the third oldest, and he was a half-brother to Amnon. Now, Absalom had a full sister named Tamar. And Amnon kind of liked her in a way that was really, really extreme and inappropriate. In fact, he had an obsession over her. He lusted for her. He was ill every day, and he had this cousin who had this great idea that if, if Amnon would just fake being sick, then David would send Tamar over to his house, and then he could have her as his wife. He could lay with her. Well, Tamar was not interested in that plan, was not interested in that advance, and Amnon then took her as his own against her will. Tamar would then leave and live a very desolate and um, difficult life as she lived with Absalom, but Absalom found out about it, and he was angry, rightfully so. Would you agree? He was furious that his full sister was taken advantage of by his half-brother, so he brought, him into her, brought her into his home, and she then lived there the rest of her life. But here's what Absalom watched. David was angry about this too. Father David, he's not only the father of this family, he's the king of the nation in which this happened. There should be punishment for this. Well, David is furious over this. He's furious that Amnon, his son, would do this to his daughter Tamar. But guess what David does? Nothing. And Absalom's rage just grows. And for two years, he sits on this rage. He's angry, and it grows, and he watches his father, David, do nothing. And like I said before, that is the seed of self-reliance. When you learn to doubt those who are above you, when you learn to doubt those that were supposed to do that which is right, and this is a universal experience that we all go through. If you've had parents or been raised by somebody, you've learned that they are fallible people. And in the learning of that, we sometimes can begin to develop a trust, not, not in them anymore, but a trust in ourselves. And so um, here we have a serious problem because of this. And so because his, he boiled with anger, uh, after two years he devised a plan. And he took Amnon and the rest of his siblings out to his farmhouse where they were having the sheep being sheared and they had a big festival. And he told his servants that the moment that Amnon is merry with wine, take his life. And he had him murdered. What seemed like justice to Absalom did nothing to help his sister Tamar or even him deal with his anger. And so following this event, immediately after he did this, um, you know, everybody runs home back to David and David is heartbroken, but Absalom runs away. And Absalom flees 
to his maternal grandfather, who is a king of another, another area, another region. Another, it was an independent kind of nation at this time on the east side of the Sea of Galilee called Geshur. And so he runs to his king maternal grandfather for safety. That's where he goes to hide. Now, this doesn't quite make sense because, you know, Amnon has just done something evil just a few years ago. And what did David do about it? Nothing. So you wonder why, why was Absalom so afraid after he took matters into his hand that, that David then would do something? Well, here's the first display of self-reliance, self-trust. You could summarize, as I said, you know, this end as, as self-reliance in this way. He started to believe that what he had done and then who he had become, what he had done is taken the life of his brother and then who he had become a murderer was no longer able to be accepted where he was in his hometown of Jerusalem and with his father, King David. And so Absalom shows us there in this little display of running away what it looks like to be so aware of our faults and our, our, our shortcomings that we begin to not like ourselves anymore. Here's what he does. The first thing is he hides away from David. For three years, he's gone. He hides away from David and he hides from his family. He hides from all that he knew in Jerusalem and he runs to his grandfather. He is convinced that he can't stay there anymore and he certainly cannot be in front of the king. He can't be seen anymore and so he has to hide. Now, how this works for us today, not necessarily, uh, I'm, I'm not assuming that many of you are fugitives on the run that are physically running like Absalom is running, but all of us hide. Sometimes we do this physically. When we're aware of, so hyper aware of our shortcomings, the way that we struggle, uh, maybe we're just so aware of the of our things that we're ashamed of, we can hide like Absalom physically. We can isolate ourselves from people. We can stay away from people. We cannot put ourselves in positions to be known by people because we're so aware of the way that we are um, maybe shortcoming in that way. Some of us hide emotionally. Some of us hide socially, spiritually. But the reality is this problem permeates all of us to some degree or another. This is the first cause, the first effect, I should say. The first effect of sin in the world is hiding. The moment Adam and Eve take the fruit and eat, their eyes are open, they know that they're naked, and they cover themselves to hide from each other. They hide behind a tree to hide from God. And when God confronts them, they make excuses to hide even from themselves. Hiding is the first result of sin entering the world. So the moment you and I have sin entering in our lives, we begin the process of figuring out how to cover that sin, how to hide. But these parts of us that we are just so sure that people, if they knew they wouldn't accept us, cannot define us. You see, when people get close to us, sometimes we want to hide, and so we find ways to hide. And we don't always hide like Absalom, but we find other ways. Things like using our achievements or maybe a career path to put up a front that is impressive so that people will be distracted by that and we might feel better about ourselves. Perhaps we'll use things like status symbols that are uh, maybe mainstream in our culture. But we also do this relationally. Sometimes we'll use things like our intellect so that we can be in the room, the smartest person in the room, so that people, and we can hide behind what we know so that people don't actually kind of get to know us. Sometimes we use things like even humor 
maybe even self-deprecating humor where we talk bad about ourselves and laugh at ourselves in a way that just try to protect ourselves from being known by people. But oftentimes when we feel so bad about ourselves, what we use is things like criticism and contempt for others. We use excuses to hide behind that, but be, be other people's failings, to criticize and have contempt for them so that we can stay at a distance from them. All of us hide. The question is, what's your go-to? Like, what, what do you use? When you have that discomfort of getting to know somebody, when you have that discomfort of somebody finally getting to see what's not just what you present, but what's underneath the surface, what's your go-to? What, what do you run to to get out of that situation? We all use these things because we're believing a message, a self-trust, that if they know, we'll be rejected. And the one speaking this message is always us. We tell ourselves this. Like Eve, we devise ways to deal with the doubt that has been planted in us. But our hiding is not simple. And here's the problem that I want to tell you about hiding. Because hiding can be kind of functional. You know, if I'm uncomfortable with people knowing me, maybe I can use some humor to like throw them off the track. Or maybe I can uh, do some things intellectually to try to distract people. But here, hiding is not so simple because Absalom didn't just hide out like in the woods. He ran. And where did he run to? He ran to his family. But that family member was a king. Someone close to him, someone familiar to him, an old uh, familiar face. But that someone was a king. And Absalom knew that if he wanted grandpa to keep him safe, he knew there would be comfort there, but that kind of safety and that kind of comfort comes in the form of the king. And here's what this matters. The things that we use to hide ourselves when we have such self-hatred are not trivial things. We don't use them like a tool when we need them in moments of discomfort and then put them back into the bag and just keep living life as normal. You see, these things actually become like kings to us. They govern us. When we use these things and then we don't stop, these things become powerful in our lives. They almost govern us. And we turn there because we know the promise of relief, but that promise comes with a price. It demands submission and allegiance. You ever think about it this way? How many times have you ever maybe relationally gotten close to somebody or maybe somebody starts to look under the hood of your life and they begin to know you and it feels a little bit uncomfortable and, and you use a diversion tactic like intellect or humor or status or something like that. And then later you're thinking back over your day and you're saying, why did I do that? You know, why did I do this thing? You ever wonder why we don't just stop doing that? It's because sin, the sin especially here of self-reliance, is not just a tool to hide our shame, but a king that governs us. It rules our life. And it will always rule us like a king because that's how it works. Now, the second thing that he does, so we have the first side on one extreme, this running and hiding because of what we've done and who we are that comes out in us, and we have to stay away from that. But the other side of it is this. After Absalom comes back, he's not really ashamed anymore. You notice this about him? When he comes back, he has no shame whatsoever. Joab goes back and he devises this plan and has um, uh, convinces David to bring him back. So um, Absalom comes back and he's not ashamed. Now he's arrogant. And what he does is astonishing. So after the three years, Absalom returns. But by now, he is bold. He is confident. He is secure. He is arrogant. 
I think three years with his grandfather, who was a king, probably built up some of his confidence. I wonder even if that's where he got the idea for the conspiracy of how to take over the kingdom from David from a grandfather who is a king. That if you just do this, this, and this, you can maybe overthrow your father and you can become king. But he comes back to Jerusalem and Absalom for two years lives in Jerusalem without ever seeing David. David just won't have him in his presence. He won't let him see him. This is a major problem. And you'll see um, in the scripture there that Absalom's guilt was still bothering him. It was still eating him up. But at this point, Absalom was not wanting forgiveness. He wasn't just wanting like, to say he's sorry to his father. He was wanting to come face to face with his father and demand the guilt to be off of him anymore. In fact, he says to Joab that either I am, uh, I am forgiven or let him kill me. He's, he's bold about this. And when you live self-reliant, you either love what you're doing and what you're thinking about yourself, like Absalom does here, or you hate it. There's no middle ground. But here's how you can know when you begin to just become self-obsessed and self-love. Here's what he does. Look in chapter 14, verse 28. It says, So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the presence of the king. Then Absalom sent for Joab, who is the commander of the army, to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servants, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has, a, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servants set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered, Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here, that I may send you to the king. Listen to the tone of his voice. I set your field on fire, and I said, Come here, that I may send you to the king and ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would have been better for me to still be there. Now, therefore, let me go into the king's, the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Notice the change in the tone of his voice. This guy set a man's field of, of barley on fire to make him come, and then he says, commander of the army, you go to the king and you say, I'm coming to talk to you. Either I'm forgiven or put me to death. Here's how you know what self-love looks like. And, and so you got to do some inventory on yourself. Let me give you a couple things. First of all, Absalom creates a problem so that he can demand his own way. Let this sit in for a minute. Do you see what Absalom does? He creates a problem so that he can see the problem and Joab has to respond to the problem. And, then, and once he creates the problem, then Absalom has the way in which we need to do things. You see, self-love manifests itself in creating problems and then demanding that your way be followed. He wants something so bad that he will create a problem so he can force his own personal solution. Do you see how self-involved he has become? So here's what you can ask yourself. A little bit of you know, reflection, takeaway. Do, do I really have kind of an obsession with myself? How hyper-aware of you, how hyper-aware are you of everyone's problems around you? How keen are you at picking out everybody's problems? 
And how astute are you at fixing everybody's problems? If that dominates your life, you probably are believing the lie of self-love. Okay? Does that make sense? Like if you just see problems all the time, if all you do is see everybody's problems and then know how to fix everybody's problems, there's a belief in you. The message you're believing is, I'm way smarter than everybody in this room. I know everything. That's what self-love does, is that it creates problems and then forces its own solution. And so you can really begin to reflect on that and see if you are self-reliant in showing this self-love that you always know you're right. Now, the second thing that he does is this. Go to chapter 15. So after he presents himself to the king, pretty bold about it, he goes in and and he, he bows respectfully to the king. But guess what David does? David kisses him. And then David gives him 50 soldiers and a chariot. And these 50 soldiers run in front of Absalom. And he has a chariot. And he is given all these gifts. He's entitled. There was no repentance in Absalom. Nothing whatsoever. He demanded to be uh, vindicated. And then he was given these gifts. And then at this moment, he begins to work his plan. So in uh, chapter 15, it says this. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used, used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. This means to the palace. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. But there is, a man, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Boy, he's crafty with his words, just like Satan. He's like, your claims, they are good. He's justifying these people's complaints before the king. And he's saying, but there's no one that can really hear your complaints. There's no one here that can give you justice. Now look what he says um, in verse 4. Then Absalom would say this, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me. And I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to the king, he would put out his hand, take hold of him, and kiss him. Then Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Amram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and he went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. Oof. Here's the second takeaway for you to see if self-love kind of permeates your life. Absalom work, Absalom's work, you know, the idea of giving justice to people, it sounds like a great job. It's cloaked in, in, in integrity. His work was not for the kingdom, but for himself. That's what his work was for. You see, work like this is usually very carefully packaged to look like it's for the king. That's why I bring this point up in this audience. There are other points you can make about this story to maybe uh, different audiences that are less Christian-oriented, but problems like this arise in Christian fellowship so much. 
Work that looks like it's for the king, but it's really to build your own kingdom. That's what the problem of Absalom was. He was winning the people to himself. That was his objective. And so he spoke against his father. He flattered his listeners. And he won their affection. And the question you have to ask yourself quietly is this. Is my work an attempt to build up the kingdom? Or am I trying to build my own mini kingdom? And these efforts don't always happen publicly. In fact, you can be building a mini kingdom with just two or three people that you keep around you that always you know, approve of you and validate you and lift you up and build you up. You can do that with just two or three people and it can be quiet. Here's how you'll know if you're working for the king or you're working for yourself. You ready? Here's what Absalom did. He had secret messengers. This is a telltale sign that you need to check yourself to see if your work is for yourself or for the kingdom. He had secret messengers. And what I mean by that is, what do your secret messages really reveal? Like if we were to take what you say, what you think, what you feel about the church, let's say as a whole, let's say the church that you're a part of, most of you are a part of the church here, or the people in the church that you're a part of, if you would take those secret words that you say that are not public and make them public, how comfortable would you be? You will know that you are building a kingdom for yourself if those secret messages are not building up the kingdom, but rather building up your own tiny little kingdom. Which ones are they? And this is where we all have to do honest reflection. We say, okay, what are the messages saying when I'm by myself? What do I say to myself? What do I say when I have my close-knit group of friends around me? What do I say? What are my secret messages? And those secret messages will reveal the kind of work you're doing. This is self-love. The belief that I will find life if all my solutions are followed and I'm finally the one in authority. I'm king. And here's the devastating effect of this belief. The moment Absalom, uh, you know, he, he gets everybody around him. He has like, you know, thousands of people that want him to be king now. David hears of it and he's afraid for his life and he leaves Jerusalem. And Absalom comes into Jerusalem. So he's in the city, God's city. He comes into the palace. He's in the king's house. He sleeps with the king's concubines. But the king is not there. And we can have all the props that look like a kingdom. And the king might not be there. That's the danger. So self-reliance either drives you to another king to hide and to be afraid, or it drives you to cause to, to make your own kingdom away from the true king. And here's the reality. The part of us that keeps us from Jesus as being the true king in our life has to die in us. Every one of us. There's not one of us that are exempt from this problem. It has to die in us. And so in chapter 18, let me show you his death, and then we'll wrap up and be done. In verse 9 of chapter 18, it says, uh, after this, uh, there was a war between David and his people and Absalom and his people. And during this war, it says in verse 9 of chapter 18, And Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on a mule, and the mule went under a thick branch of a great oak. And his head was caught fast in the oak. I, don't, I, I try to picture this, I'm not sure. But he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule under him just kept going. I, I, I don't know how he got it wedged in there. You know, it was like a, a V or something, but... He got stuck, and he's hanging there, but he's alive. A lot like the sin that lives in us. We get it hung up there, you know, we know what it is, it's ready, it just kind of hangs there alive, okay? 
Verse 10, And a certain man saw it and told Joab, Behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to the man who told him, What? You saw him? Why then did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you ten pieces of silver and a belt. But the man said to Joab, Even if I felt my hand in the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you, uh, Abashai and Ittai, for my sake protect the young man Absalom. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there is nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Joab said, I will not waste time like this with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. One takeaway from this, okay? There's a lot to learn. When that which is in us that is self-reliant is still alive, it takes a lot to kill it. And you have to be relentless about it. Joab takes three spears and rams them into his heart. And then the ten armor bearers come around Absalom and they crush him to the ground. With that same fervor, we have to go after that which is in us that makes us self-reliant. Jesus said the way to life is hard. The gate is narrow, it's hard. And then he would say, whoever would come after me must deny himself, take up his cross. He must die to himself. That's the process, this never-ending process of learning to die to self-reliance and return to a life of faith. So how are we going to do it? How does Christ deliver us from this? You learn again from Absalom. If you're on this spectrum, on this end of the spectrum, you know we have self-love and self-hate. If you're on the self-hate side, there's something that we learn. At the end of chapter 13 there, when Absalom was at the other king, it says that David's heart longed to go out to Absalom. He wanted to go get him, but he didn't. You see, if you're on that side of the spectrum where you just live in this self-doubt, self-fear, self-hate, self, you got to realize that you have a king that didn't just long to go out to you, but actually came. Romans chapter 5 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The doctrine of the eternal will of God for Jesus Christ to come has to permeate your mind that before you ever cleaned yourself up, before you ever fixed all the things that you're ashamed of, Jesus came. He loved you then. you got to learn that. And in learning that, you'll learn the beautiful blissfulness of forgetting about yourself. You see, the answer between self-love and self-hate is not self-like. It's not in the middle of the spectrum. That's not the answer. What's the first word of both of those phrases? Self. The answer is not in the middle, self-like. The answer is to come up off the spectrum and forget about yourself. That's what the love of Jesus Christ does. But what about those on the self-love side? You see, for Absalom to die when the war began, David had to suffer. It was hard for him. In fact, in chapter uh, 15, verse 30, when they were getting ready for battle, David, it says, actually climbed the Mount of Olives himself. And when he got to the top, it says that he wept. Sound familiar? And as he made plans for the battle, he gave command. He said, listen to his three commanders, when it comes to Absalom, don't touch him, don't hurt him, please spare him. And then when they came back and said that Absalom was dead, David began to weep as the king. And he said, oh, Absalom, Absalom, would I not have died in the place for you? But your king is a little bit different than that. 
You see, our true king did climb the Mount of Olives and he wept up there. But when it came to give orders for you not to die, he didn't do that. In fact, he received orders himself to die in your place. Because of our self-trust, he died. Because we were so convinced that we should trust ourselves, Jesus Christ died. The reality of a perfect man having to die for us has to break our belief that we are lovely, wise, and brilliant without him. Has to crush that. But see, our king doesn't weep and say, oh son, oh son, or oh daughter, I wish I could just die for you. You see, our king actually said, I did. And once we learn of the love of Christ and are willing to die to ourselves, our own self-reliance, when the message gets back to our king that we have died, guess what he does? He doesn't say, oh, I wish you wouldn't have done that. I would die for you. He says, I rejoice. I don't weep. I rejoice because I died so that you know you can too. I died so that you could finally have life found in faith. And so the question is, do you need today to die? The answer is yes. We need to die continually to ourselves. The self-trust that grows in us, whether that shows itself in hatred of ourselves or in obsession and love of ourselves, both need to die of self. And the way that it dies is through the love of a king who would give himself for us, that raptures us out of self-obsession into self-forgetfulness that we might be part of a kingdom that is united under the head of Jesus Christ. We want all of you to be a part of that. We're here to help you come as we stand and sing.